Greetings to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 59. So 31 to 59, chapter 8. And let's hear God's Word together. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you, will, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to, said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as do the prophets, yet you say, if one keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we were once slaves to sin and slaves to Satan, spiritually blind and unresponsive to your truth running from you, in bondage to sin. Father, this morning we give thanks that you did not leave us to die in our sins. You sent your son Jesus to 
the good shepherd, to come in searching for us, that we might be brought back to you. Thank you, Father, that you have, through your son Jesus, reconciled us to yourself, washed us of our sins, and given us new life. Father, we ask for grace to walk in increasing conformity to your holy will and law. We desire our thoughts and our desires and our conduct to be shaped by your word more and more because we believe that there is freedom, not in rebellion against you, but only in glad submission to you. So please use your word this morning, Father, to soften our hearts, make us responsive to you and to Christ, and cause us to walk more and more in the light. Do this that your name might be more honored in our lives and that we might experience the joy of obedience. Amen. So I recently read a, a review or an analysis of a movie, I haven't watched the movie, but I read the analysis, uh, of this movie where two convicts break out of prison and they get on this train, and the train is speeding along, and it can't be stopped because of some problem with the engine. The only other person on the train is the train's engineer, female engineer. Uh, so they are moments away from death. They can't stop the train. They can't jump off the train because it's moving too quickly. So they decide to try to work together to get themselves out of this entanglement. Uh, they want to work together to preserve their lives, but pretty soon even this effort to work together gives way to malicious fighting and attempted murder. Uh, they forget all about trying to live, and they fight with each other. And the, these characters face the dual horror of imminent death and their own wickedness that keeps them from doing what they need to do, it keeps them from acting wisely in that situation. And a, Christ, a Christian commentator makes this observation about this film. He, says, he describes it in this way. Uh, it depicts sense, senselessly murderous humans moments before a death they will in no way escape. It is hard to imagine a clearer picture of the human condition. That's what it's like, he says. We are one step away from death. It's always there just around the corner. And what do we do with this brief moment that we have, this breath that we call life? How do we use this brief interlude between birth and death? Well, characteristically, we don't use this brief life to submit ourselves to God, uh, walk in love for Him and others. We characteristically walk in wickedness. We are in the vice grip of sin and rebellion. But the good news of this passage is that Jesus has come into the world to rescue us from the tyranny of death and the tyranny of sin. The Son of God can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Specifically, the Son uh, frees us from sin. Uh, second, as we'll see, the Father frees us from Satan. And third, the Son frees us from death. The Son frees us from sin. The Father frees us from Satan. The Son frees us from death. So the whole issue of freedom arises um, shortly after 31. There's a crowd of Jews who have been listening to Jesus, and Jesus has been talking about his message and his mission, and some of them respond positively. John tells us that they believe. But as is sometimes the case in John, those who are said to believe at one moment, shortly thereafter, turn against Jesus. When it turns out that Jesus doesn't exactly line up with their biases, their preconceived notions, they turn against him. And that's what we see in this passage. Those who believe at the beginning of this discourse are also the ones who reject Jesus at the end. Nevertheless, they are said to believe in Jesus. And so Jesus begins to tell them what it means to follow him. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 
Uh, that word truly suggests that there is such a thing as false disciples. Uh, but, but the difference between authentic and inauthentic disciples is that the real ones persevere in his word. They abide in it. They continue in it. They believe his promises. They believe that he is who he says he is, and they seek to walk in increasing obedience uh, to his commands. Uh, they're not daunted by the discouragements, disappointments, and troubles of life. They keep holding on to Jesus' word. The inauthentic disciples, by contrast, are the ones who are finally uh, caused by the troubles of life, the pleasures of life, to reject Jesus, to walk away uh, from the truth and go their own way. The true disciples persevere. And those who persevere, Jesus says, know the truth, truth about who he is and what he's done, and that truth will set them free. The news about what Jesus Christ has done will increasingly free them from the tyranny of sin in their lives and enable them to walk in moral freedom in submission to God. But this language of freedom uh, perplexes the Jews, and they say, you're talking about being freed. What do, you, what do you mean? We've never been enslaved. We are the children of Abraham. We are the offspring of Abraham. I've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? What do you mean that we're implicitly, at least, enslaved? Now, I don't think the Jews are here saying that they've never been politically enslaved. That's manifestly not the case. There are several moments in Israel's history where they were enslaved by the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. I don't think in the first instance what they have in mind is political freedom. What they have in mind, it seems, is spiritual freedom. They are the children of Abraham. Uh, They belong to God and are slaves to no man, something like that. They are spiritually free. Jesus goes on then in verse 34 to explain the sense in which they are enslaved. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Whoever characteristically sins, that's their lifestyle, shows that they are under the vice grip or the tyranny of sin. To sin is simply to rebel against the command or will of God, to do what you want instead of what he wants. And those who live characteristically in opposition to God, those who sin, show that they are enslaved to sin, that they are under its power. Now, someone could look at that claim, and many do, and go, I don't feel like a slave. I feel free, free to do exactly what I want. In what sense am I free then, or a slave then? Uh, In response, I would note that part of the reason you feel free is because it's often the case that you like your slavery. You like living for yourself first and ignoring God and others. That's what you want to do, so it feels like freedom. Putting yourself first, I mean, nothing could be easier, right? And so, so you like your slavery, and it doesn't feel, therefore, like slavery. But what happens when you try to do some real good? What happens when you try to engage in some sort of character growth or moral reform in your life? Well, then you can start feeling the pull of those chains, can't you? Uh, When a man decides, for instance, that his chronic uh, outbursts of anger are destroying his marriage and alienating his children, he'll often resolve to stop with these outbursts of anger. He'll solemnly resolve, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to blow up on my wife. I'm not going to blow up on my kids. A day goes by, no blow up. Two days go by, no blow up. Third day after a long day at work, when he comes home and wants some peace and quiet and can't get it because of the screaming kids, boom, more of the same. He's troubled by this. So he resolves harder to do better. A week goes by this time and again, blows up. And so it goes. There is a resolve to do good, not blow up. 
And again and again, he finds that moral resolve to do what's right frustrated. He's beginning to feel the strength of those chains that Jesus is talking about. And this is actually a comparatively small thing. Like not blowing up at people is not the highest moral virtue, right? There are deeper lessons to be learned. Sacrificial love, humility, contentment, generosity, courage. If we can't even control our temper, how are we going to grow in all of these areas? And when we try to be a better person, a good person, we find ourselves failing again and again. Why? Because Jesus is right. And apart from him, we are in chains and can't be free. When we try to do, to do good, we find evil right there with us. And we sympathize with the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 7, 18 through 21. See if this doesn't ring true. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Have you experienced that? Want to do good and find yourself yanked back by those chains. That's the condition of mankind. And Jesus says, you know what? There is hope, but that hope isn't in you. That hope is finally in me. As the Son of God, He can liberate you from those chains so that you are increasingly able to live the way God intended you to live in profound love for Him and others, in self-control, in joy, and in peace. This is what He says. The slave does not remain in the house forever. So the one who is a slave to sin is eventually going to be cast out of God's family or household. Speaking to Jews here. They think that their place in the household of God is locked in because of their uh, spiritual descent, or physical descent, I should say, from Abraham. Jesus says, not so. The one who carries on in bondage to sin is ultimately rejected from the household of God. But the Son remains forever, and whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. When Jesus liberates you from the tyranny and dominion of sin, He really liberates you. He's the one that we are called to run to, to experience freedom from captivity to evil. As we look to him in faith, it's not just that our sins are pardoned and we are um, spotless before God. It's also that we find new strength to live for the glory of God. What that means is that a Christian can't ever say, this sin that I've struggled with for years um, has me beat. Uh, there's no way I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ever, ever put this sin to death. So we throw up our hands in despair and say, that's it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, I'm destined to continue in this way. Uh, when you say that, you need to understand that you're not believing the truth of this passage. Jesus says that all those who belong to him will experience increasing freedom. Maybe not right away, as we'll see in a moment. Maybe not right away. Uh, but do you believe that Jesus is stronger than, than, than the sin in your life, than the strength of its grip over you? Do you believe that he's so great that he can break the power of sin? If you believe that when you sin, you don't lose heart. What you do is you confess your sins to God and seek forgiveness. And then you look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I wish that I was done with this sin already. But I believe, because of who you are, that the day, th this sin's days are numbered. The time is coming when I will be free from it. So I'm not going to lose heart. I'm going to keep fighting, I'm going to keep seeking you, and I'm going to keep praying because you have promised that you'll free me and at some point that freedom will come. That's what it means to fight in faith. You don't lose heart, you don't give up, you don't accept your sin. You keep fighting because you know that Jesus has defeated the tyranny of sin over your life and in due course that freedom will be actualized in practice and in your experience. 
Now, as I talk about freedom in Jesus, some of you find that discouraging. The reason you find that discouraging is that even though you believe in Jesus, you're not experiencing that freedom. Uh, you find yourself bound to some sinful habit or, or some pattern of disobedience. That's not, you, you say to yourself, I haven't tasted this freedom that Jesus talks about. Uh, if that's you, let me say a couple of things in response. Number one, it would be helpful to meet with a pastor, or an elder, or a mature believer, and, and talk through some of the details of what you're experiencing, because they might help give you perspective that you don't currently have. So they might help you to deal with some of the specifics in your life. Um, but also three general responses that should be kept in mind if you feel discouraged. Um, first thing to recognize in your struggle with sin is that the battle with sin requires us to take a, a longer view of the battle, a longer view of the battle. Sometimes we want to be done with this sin now, and that's good. But often the way Jesus works in our lives is that it's a process. It takes time, sometimes a long time. And we need to recognize that we need to keep chipping away at that sin and not lose heart. It might take a long time, it might take years and decades, but eventually Jesus will do his work. So take a longer view of your battle with sin. Secondly, take a broader view of your battle with sin. Sometimes we become, we become so fixated on stopping this one sin that we know we need to knock off that we forget about our other responsibilities to God. So someone, for example, who's fixated on not lusting anymore, not looking, on dirt, you know, looking at dirty images on the internet, can become so fixated at not lusting that they forget about all the other things God requires of them, like love others, serve them. And often you find that as you start to be faithful in other areas, like you get out of yourself and you start thinking about other people and you're more generous with your time and you start serving, you find that there's spillover. As you are less selfish in one area of, of your life and you grow in the Lord, you find uh, that it has some spillover, or can have some spillover in another area where you're struggling. So take a broader view of your struggle with sin. It's not just about stopping this one thing. It's about pursuing faithfulness across the board to Jesus. Third thing uh, to note here is that we should have a gospel-informed view of the struggle, a gospel-informed view of our battle with sin. Many of us, if you were asked to explain how it is that a Christian grows spiritually, you'd probably say something like, try harder, you know, roll up your sleeves and do better, that solemn resolve to do what's right. No, there's a place for that. There is a place in Scripture for moral striving, for putting sin to death, and seeking to grow in righteousness. But if that's the only piece of the puzzle, you're missing a large part of what the New Testament says about spiritual growth. Uh, look at what Jesus says. Notice in verse 32, he says that the truth will set you free. And notice uh, that in verse 35, it says that he'll set you free. The truth will set you free. The Son will set you free. The implication of that seems to be that the Son frees you through the Word. The good news about who he is, what he has accomplished, and who you are in light of him has an increasingly freeing effect on your life. So what we learn from this passage is, is that if we want to experience more freedom, kill sin, and walk in increasing, increasing obedience to God, it's not just a matter of trying harder. It's about looking more and more at who Jesus is, understanding his work more deeply, believing it more deeply, and walking in light of it. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 argues in the same way. It's like 10 verses at the beginning of chapter 6, saying, here's who Jesus is, here's what he's done, here, here is how he's broken the power of sin, right? Believe this. 
And then he gets to the practical application of verse 11 and 12. And he says, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So everything I've just said, believe that. Consider yourself dead to sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your body to make you obey its passions. So as you're believing this about Jesus, put sin to death. Notice he doesn't just say put sin to death. He says, as you understand who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, that the power of sin has been broken in your life, as you're trusting in that, go ahead and put sin to death and walk in increasing obedience. Belief, let, me, let, me, let me say it this way. Belief in the gospel converts us, saves us, and belief in the gospel continues to transform us afterward. As we look at Jesus, understand who he is, what he's done, we find increasing freedom. So maybe that's one of the reasons that you're not growing the way you would like. It's, a, it's simply, I'm going to try harder, but there's no sense of looking at Jesus and trusting in him more deeply um, as the vehicle for spiritual transformation. But in any case, Jesus makes clear that if we want freedom from moral darkness, we go to him. He's the son who can make us free. Secondly, we see that the father has the power to free us from the tyranny of Satan. The first issue that Jesus dealt with was the, the whole issue of freedom. Jews say, we're not, we're not slaves. Jesus says, yes, you are, you're slaves to sin. But then related to that issue was the whole issue of parentage. Uh, we're Abraham's descendants. And basically, 37 through 47, Jesus says, are you? We're the descendants of Abraham. We're free. Jesus says, are you the descendants of Abraham? Jesus acknowledges in verse 37 that they are physically descended from Abraham. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. Uh, but their conduct doesn't reflect Abraham's conduct. And so they, say, they reaffirm in verse 39, Abraham is our father. Jesus says, if you want to claim Abraham as your father, you need to walk in his footsteps, in his faith and obedience. That's how you can tell if Abraham is your spiritual father, your real father. Are you walking in faith and obedience? Uh, and actually, Jesus says, I, as I look at you, you're not doing the things that Abraham did. You are seeking to kill me, a messenger from God. These are not things that Abraham has done. These are things that you're doing. However, you are acting in accordance with your father. Now, at that point in the argument, or the discussion, I should say, Jesus doesn't specify who that father is. He has just made it clear that you don't act the way Abraham acts, and therefore you're not really, uh, you aren't really the children of Abraham like you like to think. They respond, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Okay, you challenge our, the fatherhood of Abraham. Uh, well, we have God as father, they say. When they say that we're not born of sexual immorality, that could be indirectly an insult to Jesus. Implicitly, you're the product of sexual immorality. We're, we're not. Maybe there's an allusion to the mysterious circumstances of his birth. Maybe that's possible. I think more probably, however, what they're saying is that we are not worshipers of pagan gods. Uh, we serve the one true and living God. He is our Father. And Jesus says, not so fast. If God were your Father, you would love me because I came from God. He sent me. But actually, you can't stand my words. You hate what I say. Uh, you cannot bear my word, verse 43. And then he identifies the Father that he's already mentioned, verse 44. You are of your Father the devil, and your will is to do your Father's desires. It's a shocking statement. These are people who just responded kind of positively to Jesus. And Jesus says, actually, don't be misled. It's not Abraham who is your father. It's not God who is your father. You want to know whom you resemble? You, you resemble not Abraham, but the devil. 
Satan, incidentally, is a fallen angel, according to Scripture, uh, who, along with other fallen angels and demons, oppose the work of God in the world. They oppose the saving work of God. They seek to keep men and women in darkness and in bondage to sin and unsettle believers. Jesus is saying to these Jews, there's a family resemblance between you and Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning, a reference presumably to the fall of Adam and Eve. Satan, by tempting Adam and Eve, brought death into the world. It's also probably a reference to Cain. Satan was behind the murder of Cain, of his brother. Satan is a murderer. He destroys life. And you're thinking about taking mine, is what Jesus says. Therefore, you reflect not Abraham, but Satan. And not only is Satan a murderer, he's a liar, the father of lies. When he speaks lies, that's, he's speaking uh, as the overflow of his character. That's who he is. And you also are far more likely to follow lies and deception of Satan than the truth I speak to you. Look at verse 45. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now consider that statement for a moment. Jesus is saying, it's precisely because I'm telling you the truth that you find it hard to believe what I'm saying. You are so accustomed to, to treating lies as truth that when truth actually comes, you, tr you treat the truth as a lie. You are so accustomed to walking in the darkness under the dominion of Satan that when someone speaks truth to you, when the Son of God tells you this is reality, you write him off and treat him as a crazy person because the truth seems to you in your darkened spiritual state like a lie. And the lies of Satan seem to you like truth. This is the condition of human beings apart from Jesus. Not only are we under the dominion of sin, but we are also blinded by Satan, believing his lies and living in rebellion against God. The Apostle Paul uh, describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan does is he keeps people from seeing the truth about themselves and about Jesus. And they go on walking in the darkness. And apart from Jesus, that's the truth, about, the truth about everyone. Bondage to sin, blinded by Satan. So we have to ask the question, how does anyone get out of that tyranny? How does anyone ever come out from under the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of light? kingdom of Jesus Christ. And implicitly, verse 47 tells us, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Notice in that verse that there are two categories, of God, not of God. Those who are of God respond, those who are not of God don't respond. Now, we need to be crystal clear about the fact that everybody prior to coming to Jesus is in the not of God camp. No one is by nature in the of God camp. By nature, we are in the not of God camp. So what is it that causes us to enter the of God camp? Well, the answer is it's the work of God in us. Notice very carefully in verse 47 that it's not hearing or believing that causes you to be of God. It is being of God that causes you to believe. You see that? And that, by the way, is the logic of John throughout the gospel. It is because of the prior, undeserved, gracious work of the Father in our hearts 
that we come to put our faith in Jesus Christ. It is because of his undeserved goodness that we respond. It is because of God's work in our souls that our eyes are opened and we no longer believe Satan's lies, but believe the truth of Jesus Christ. This truth is developed in even more detail in chapter 6. Uh, verse 44 is, is one of those verses. Jesus says, No one can come to me, believe in me, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Our faith in Jesus is preceded by this prior work of God in our soul where he draws us to himself, where he summons us into a relationship with himself, where he opens our eyes to see that Jesus is who he says he is and we are the sinners that he says we are. The Apostle Paul compares that moment of divine light in our souls to God's initial creating work in Genesis 1. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, in the face of Jesus Christ. So in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light, and boom, the darkness is dispelled. In a similar way, because of his sheer goodness, God says, let there be light, and the lights go on in our souls, and our eyes are open, and we see our need, and we believe in Jesus Christ. If we are here today and we are trusting in Jesus, it's not because of any intrinsic goodness in us that we are better people than all those other people who reject Jesus. It's not because of any kind of superiority and wisdom that we're more discerning. It's not because we have softer hearts. In the final analysis, if we are trusting in Jesus today as our Savior, and many aren't, in the final analysis, it is because of the undeserved goodness of God which found us dead in our sins, and he breathed life into us, caused us to see, and as a result, we believe in Jesus. That should do, it should humble us when we are tempted to look down on others from a place of moral superiority. Maybe non-Christians, outsiders. When there's that temptation to say, oh, well, look how they're living. Um, I'm more righteous than they. When you're tempted to think that way, remember that you were as dead in your sins and trespasses and the only difference is God brought you from death to life. That's why you are where you are. That should also engender compassion, sympathy, and gentleness towards other people. Uh, they're still blinded by the God of this world, as Paul puts it. Our response should, should be one of compassion and gentleness. Indeed, we should pray for the souls of those who don't know Jesus. We should pray that God would do in their hearts what he has done in our hearts. That he would cause the light of the gospel to shine that they might see the truth in Jesus and believe. The bottom line is this, we're trusting in Jesus. It's not because we're better than anyone or superior to anyone. It's because God in his undeserved goodness caused his light to shine in our hearts. Third thing to note, final thing to note, is that Jesus frees us from death. Jesus frees us from death, the son frees us from death. Well, having been told that they are children of Satan, that they are in the darkness. The Jews respond in verse 48 by ridiculing Jesus. You're a Samaritan. Jews didn't like Samaritans. That's why it functions as an insult. Uh, Samaritans were viewed as half-breeds and religiously compromised, and so they're slandering Jesus by saying, you're one of those. And, you, and you, aren't we right in saying you have a demon? Note the irony. There are people controlled by Satan, influenced by Satan, and they're accusing Jesus, who tells them the truth, of having a demon. Jesus denies that he has a demon. 
and tells them that the Father honors him. And then he makes this really extraordinary claim, verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus is not speaking here of physical death. It's what the Jews misunderstand him to be saying. We'll talk about that in a moment. But when Jesus is saying that whoever keeps his word will never see death, he means two things. First, he means that they will not see the judgment of God. That's what we deserve apart from Christ. We're rebels who, who do what we want rather than what God wants and are under his judgment. But if we trust in Jesus, that judgment is set aside. Jesus pays the penalty of our sins so we can have peace with God. We have life in that sense. We have life also in the sense that we have li the life of the world to come. The, the Bible gives us a glimpse of the end of human history. And human history doesn't end with a funeral. It ends with a, with a wedding supper, with a marriage, with a celebration. God is going to make everything new. He's going to raise his people from the ground with resurrection bodies. He's going to heal his broken creation. And all those who trust in Jesus will be summoned to life to rejoice in that new creation and to rejoice in the presence of God. That's the life that Jesus is offering. Whoever accepts his word will experience that life. But they misunderstand and they take him to be referring to physical death and they say, you're claiming to be able to keep people from dying. Are you not aware that Abraham died and the prophets died? Do you think you're greater than these people? Do you think you're greater than Abraham? Yes, as we'll say. That's the point. Jesus says, you know, speaking of Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He was looking forward to see my, seeing my day. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it was glad. Now, Jesus here means something like saw by faith through the promises that God had made to Abraham. Abraham saw that they would be fulfilled in something like the person and work of Christ. But again, they take Jesus in a woodenly literalistic way. When he says he saw, they, they think he... Literally, they saw him in the course of his lifetime. You're not even 50 years old, they retort. How could Abraham have seen you? And then this is the bombshell. This is the most direct and clear statement of Jesus' divinity in the gospel thus far. Possibly the whole gospel. How, how, could, how could Abraham have seen you? You're not even 50. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus doesn't just mean that he existed before Abraham, although that's included. Jesus is using the divine name of God that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3. Uh, when Moses said, how should I speak of you to the people of Israel? God says, I am. I am who I am, or Yahweh. That's my name. That's the name you're going to use with the people of Israel. And you know what Jesus is saying? I am Yahweh. I am, I am. I am the Lord. I am God. He couldn't have declared his divinity any more clearly or directly than this. If you're going to accept Jesus, it's not enough to accept him as a wise moral teacher on par with like a Socrates. Uh, the only way to accept Jesus is to accept him for who he is, and he is nothing less than God incarnate, very God of very God, who has come into the world to save us sinners from our sins. I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying, which is precisely why they pick up stones to kill Jesus. 
This was viewed as blasphemy, a mere human calling himself God. They pick up the stones to kill Jesus. And we need to recognize that it's precisely because Jesus is God incarnate that he can deliver us from the power of sin. When we think about Jesus' salvation, we recognize that it's not simply a man, even a perfect man, who died and rose again. God himself has acted in Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sins. And therefore, we will certainly be rescued. We will certainly escape from his judgment and have life in the world to come. It is because God himself has acted in history through the person of his son Jesus that we can have absolute confidence that death has been defeated and there is life in the world to come. One of the most pressing questions we face as human beings is how can I confront my mortality? How can I confront that solemn day when I leave this earth? Jesus tells us, all those who believe in me, for all those people, death is not the end, it's the beginning. On the other side of death, there is not judgment and condemnation. There are the open arms of a heavenly Father who welcomes us into his presence. There is life in a renewed creation where we will taste life as it was meant to be lived with overflowing joy and the total absence of sorrow, heartache, guilt, and shame. That is the life that Jesus has procured, and everyone who believes in him has that life. That's how we can face the day of our departure. That's how we can face our mortality. If we have Jesus, the terror of death has been taken away. He's waiting for us on the other side. It's an, uh, a hymn that really beautifully captures this truth. And it goes like this. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the, sa the saints who dwell on high, who've found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. O oh, Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. Through Jesus, paradoxically, it is not death to die. Death is the gateway to life. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess on the basis of your word that you are the life giver, that you are the one who frees us from the power of our sin and even the dominion of Satan. Jesus, we rejoice in you and we give thanks for a, an abundant, overflowing, lavish salvation that meets us at every point of need. You are a great Savior, and we love you and adore you. Amen.